Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At Chartres Cathedral in France, pilgrims and the faithful from all over the world enter the building and light candles. These candles provide a way to assist people in lifting up their prayers to God in a tangible way. The sacred space and the lighting of the candles leaves a powerful impression on the people who visit there. The candles, however, do something else. You can imagine the effect of smoke and the gas created and the flame from the sheer number of candles in one year, let alone over the centuries, and how that might take a toll on the historic cathedral. The interior, the windows, and more require professional renovation to preserve the building and its art. Something as little as a candle. And there are some who have lobbied the bishop of Chartres Cathedral for electric candles. And the bishop refuses. Why? Candles don't last. Neither does a building. Donna Shaper writes about this in a book of hers about the possibilities for sacred spaces. And in it, she says, the bishop's argument is that the cathedral is not so much a mortal as a guide to immortality. Permanence or changelessness would be a spiritual lie, he says, the kind many people want, but is plain untrue. We long for permanence and long to burn candles. And of course we want permanence. It's all humanity has ever wanted. This is, of course, exactly what Peter encounters here on the mountaintop. The fear of change, the desire for permanence. This story begins and ends so abruptly. And even though it's technically in the lectionary every year, it's always the last reading of Epiphany season, right before Lent. It's like every time you hear it, wait, what? Moses and Elijah and the Radiant? Well, some of the background of this story can kind of help give us some context and understand what is going on here. Our scripture reading today takes place on the snow-topped Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan River which has been a site of spiritual importance for centuries, not just for Christians and Jews, but also for the Canaanites centuries before our story took place today. The scripture reading begins and ends so quickly. But before this passage, Jesus has said to his disciples that he must suffer, die, and rise again, and that anyone who wishes to follow him will have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The disciples are so confused and bewildered, and even Peter argues with Jesus, refusing to believe. This is where we have Jesus say to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! Which is a very fun phrase to say. 
So here we are, six days later, and Jesus, Peter, James, and John are summiting this mountain. And you can imagine, this is a large, I think 9,000-foot mountain. Snow glistening at the top, sun shining brilliantly. And before them, they see this amazing sight. In just one moment, it was just them standing there all alone, and in front of them, suddenly, the prophets of their ancestors, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, all three are shining bright. I almost imagine like when you go skiing and the sun is hitting off the bright white snow. Maybe they're feeling blinded by the sight as well as the snow. And the text says that they were terrified. And really, what we understand is that they are in awe of what they are seeing. Now, when you see something like that, I bet you, you wouldn't know what to do. And so Peter suggests something that might sound a little silly to us, but to him, it makes a lot of sense. He suggests to build three shrines right on the site, one for each of them. And this is his way of trying to grasp at what's going on. For Peter, this is a familiar and comfortable response to such a surreal moment. It's a cultural custom of the Greeks and his ancestors, like Jacob and Joshua, to mark the site of an encounter with God. A practical thing, easier to do something in response to something supernatural than to maybe process or think about it. He is grasping for something to do in response, and perhaps he's also struggling with his own acceptance and anticipatory grief, knowing that, as Jesus said six days before, that one day, perhaps all too soon, Jesus won't be there any longer to lead them. And so, just like how we want to hold on to those that we love, perhaps this is Peter's way to create something that feels permanent, some way that he could return to this very moment. The author of Mark shows us that the place isn't what's important, or even what happened there. What is important, as the voice of God says, is to listen to Jesus. Don't build a shrine, a temple, or cathedral on this spot. Listen to Jesus. Follow his example. Scholars believe that the author of this gospel is writing about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, about 70 AD, when the Roman army has sieged Jerusalem and the temple has been destroyed. The author is just as intimately aware of the futile desire for permanence. The author and all of those around him are grieving the loss of their great temple and their holy city. And we've known this feeling too in our time. We felt it when we watched Notre Dame burning in 2019. We felt it watching the roof collapse of the church in New London just two weeks ago. We feel it now, seeing images of historic and architectural wonders of mosques and archaeological sites from the time of Christ and the medieval ages transfigured into rubble from the bombing of Gaza. No more could we visit these sites again. 
And in the first place, maybe you have never visited a single one of these sites, and still it may cause you to grieve. The author of Mark knew this feeling, and his faith tells him, like the Bishop of Chartres Cathedral, that the place is not so much immortal as it is a guide to immortality. The place will not last. You build a shrine on this mountaintop, it's going to get covered with snow, it's going to deteriorate. This moment, however, will guide Peter and those after him. The place will change and give way to time and nature and the consequences of human action, but what always remains are the stories, the touchstones of faith, the lessons of Christ, and legacies of those who have followed him. That is what is immortal and lasting. Christ says to keep this whole event quiet until he has risen from the dead. And surely this baffles Peter, James, and John. We need to share this with the world, they might be thinking. This is good news. This proves that you are the Messiah following in the steps of Moses and Elijah. But according to the author of Mark, true messiahship isn't with trumpets and chariots, as we will see on Palm Sunday just a few weeks away, but with a hidden truth, the quiet suffering servant, as the prophet Jeremiah describes. The truth must be concealed until the resurrection, the ultimate revelation, the ultimate epiphany. Donna Schaefer, in the book that I mentioned, writes that holy places are a spiritual assist she likens a sanctuary in a church to Megan Rapinoe receiving the ball from a pass from one of her teammates. We, as caretakers of sacred places, have the responsibility of a delicate dance. We must always keep one foot in the spiritual discipline of stewarding these structures and our resources so that we can help assist others to be reminded about what our faith tells us, while also one step in the wisdom that these buildings are not permanent and ultimately are not as important as what our faith teaches us. So which is it? Do we build a shrine on this mountaintop or do we listen to Christ? Do we save a building or do we do the work of God? Well, according to Shaper, her answer is yes. It's a both and, a delicate dance. And First Congregational Church of Reading, I don't know if you know this, but you're in a similar mountaintop moment. There have been many of these mountaintop moments in the lifespan of our church in the last 254 years, and this is just one of them. There isn't a blinding, radiant, supernatural image before us. Pause, look around, didn't happen, no. But we're at a place in our journey where we have reached a type of summit, when you're hiking and you've taken the, all of the energy and sweat and stamina to get to the top, there's that moment where you just pass the tree line and you realize, whoa, we're actually so much closer than we thought we were. You get there and you're able to look back behind you, see how far you've come. Sometimes you can even see Oh yeah, that little, that little road down there with those itty bitty ant cars. Yeah, that's the trailhead we started at. Wow. You can think about how far you've come. 
been doing exactly that. Over the past two decades, you've been listening to the facts across our country that mainline denominations are struggling, church attendance is down, and social scientists now say we are in a desert of social capital. Our culture no longer has structures that connect us across difference, across age and socioeconomic status, culture, religion, and political differences. It used to be that there were opportunities for this, that people were more civically engaged and active in their houses of worship and their communities, but now there is a dearth of social capital. And for 20 or so years, you, First Congregational Church of Reading, have been listening to the canaries in the coal mines. Not only culturally, hearing the warnings of this decline, but also contextually here in our own church, asking questions like, will we survive? What about our finances and the ability to fund our mission and ministry? Should we spend limited resources to fix a building if all churches will ultimately decline and die in the next few decades? But for the better part of those two past decades, the trail behind you, you've listened, you've prayed, you've worked, and done the slow tending of the soil, waiting to see what would come forth. And at some point, we did emerge above that tree line to see a summit, and it may not feel like you've really gotten anywhere, but I think that's perhaps you see the rest of the journey still in front of you. When Jesus, Peter, John, and James do descend the mountain, they are met with similar sights as Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. The disciples, like the ancient Israelites, are squabbling in discord. They are struggling and arguing about how to heal a boy. There are all these people in need, and it's just as Moses may have felt. I can't leave you alone for one minute, can I? When the father of the boy comes forward and says, I have faith. Help my lack of faith. Church, I know you have faith, but I wonder, do you know it of yourselves? Like Peter, we struggle to grapple with the difficult news before us of death and decline. Every church is. And some churches are holding on for dear life to the shrines they've built there. And some are listening to Jesus. It's natural to fear the future, and of course, all churches are feeling the anxiety of what is to come. As Peter shows us, and the bishop of Sharp Cathedral, it's human to desire permanence. But is permanence the only goal? Does permanence measure success? How do we know when we've reached sustainability? What will be the signs to show us we did it? We arrived at our destination. And I'm not being Pollyanna. I'm giving you the facts. We are a vibrant and thriving church. It may not feel like it because maybe you're still looking back the way you've come. And maybe you're desiring the permanence in the face of change. Or perhaps you still hear the facts of the declining church all around us. But that's old news. The good news that's something altogether, isn't it? The place is not so much immortal as it is a guide to immortality. 
We may say, we will be sustainable once we reach X number of dollars in the endowment. Or, we'll be successful once all the problems in the building have been fixed. The bishop of Chartres Cathedral or Notre Dame will tell you, that's never going to happen. Sorry, property. Success, sustainability, a flourishing ministry, all these things are not measured in a church by a certain number reached or a goal achieved, but our lives lived well. It's about the lives you transform along the way. It's about those little moments, like opening your doors to the neighbors across the street during a seven-alarm fire, or offering a home for a half a dozen self-help groups so they can brew coffee and meet face-to-face with someone else dealing with addiction and alcoholism, so they know that they're not alone. So much good news is shared behind the scenes at our church. Did you know that we have a daisy troop that meets every week? That our hallways are filled with infants and toddlers most weekdays from 9 to 12? That music is heard nonstop from 2 to 9 p.m., from students learning to play to community concert bands? If our measure of success is attendance on a Sunday morning, there are plenty of other churches that would say, we're already successful. But I really don't think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, feed my sheep. It's part of it, for sure. The shepherds need nourishment, too. But it's also all the other ways we share the good news Monday through Saturday, both within these walls and beyond those doors. True success, a truly flourishing church, is one that is full of life, joy, and living a gospel of resurrection. Structures and oppression of the world around us does not have the last say. The true signs of a flourishing church, of a sustainable church, are the ones that model love. It's just as God says to the disciples on the mountaintop, listen to Jesus. Will you pray with me? God of cathedrals and mountaintops, throughout all of history, we, your people, have craved permanence. We would rather feel secure and successful rather than the discomfort of challenge and change. Like the tides of the ocean shifting the sands, show us how small movements can make lasting impacts. Remind us to listen to you, to follow Christ's example, and bless this church that it continues to flourish and thrive as it already is. This we pray in your holy name. Amen.